This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This is our last pod before the international break, during which we're going to take a short break, just signposting that early doors ahead of this season's final run-in. No, I didn't say our run-in there, you know the one I mean. Anyway, before that, we've a lot to catch up on, including Saints' march to the arch, having reached the FA Cup semi-finals, and the final four out of 736 sides who entered this season, Shelley becoming McShelley, Danny Ings, Ralph Hasenhutl, and the SFC Playbook. Yes, alongside reflecting on the FA Cup quarterfinal win against Bournemouth, We'll also be answering some of your questions with no Premier League fixture to preview next weekend. With me as per normal and probably in need of a break just as much as Saints are Steve, Glenn and Dan. How are we doing, guys? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, good, yeah, thank can't, you. Can't complain. It's been, been a good weekend. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? It has, Steve, yeah. And uh, Dan, you were just saying before we got going there, it was my first question, actually, whether you were looking forward to the international break and a bit of time off. And uh, it sounds like you're, you're off this week, so you're looking forward to that, yeah? Yeah, I can't wait, if I'm being honest. Even though there's the kind of caveat there's nothing to do at the moment, it's, yeah, I'm, I just need a break. It's been pretty relentless covering Saints for the last two or three months. So, yeah, just looking forward to switching the laptop off for a week. Although with this job, you're never quite off because it, all it takes is one text or one phone call, then all of a sudden you're back at work. But it'll be nice not having to get up first thing Monday morning and think, right, this week, what are we going to do? Mm, yeah. There's a slow cooker that needs unboxing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you're the first yeah. person that's mentioned a slow cooker this, this, this weekend. And I normally know when Saints have lost because at least two or three people <laughs> in my mentions on Twitter will mention, have you opened the slow cooker yet? Or the slow cooker's more interesting than this. So <laughs> have when people, they win, Have people when, really got nothing better to think about? <laughs> <laughs> no, when they, they don't. When they win, <laughs> it doesn't get mentioned. When they lose, the slow cooker... Be- you know, it's this oh, phenomenon. It's a nice so. icebreaker, isn't it? It's become a bit of a sort of, you know, a natural talking point when things are doom and gloom. I like that. It is. We've generated it is, that. and I think I'm going to try and monetize it in the summer, actually, when I do move and unbox it 
I mean, I've heard there's a kid in America that just opens toys on YouTube. I, I've not watched it, but apparently he makes millions yeah. from doing this. Yeah. So, and I'm told all the kids love it. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not aiming at kids, the kids market here, but adults may like me unboxing a slow cooker. So, yeah, very watch good. it, watch this space. I think uh, just finally, yeah, we could set up a whole Total Saints podcast drinking game, couldn't we? Every time you uh, or we mention the slow cooker, someone has to do a shot somewhere or something like that. But uh, there we go. And uh, yeah, Steve, as uh, regular listeners will know, you obviously uh, enjoy England national football. Um, games over the next couple of weeks against San Marino, Albania, and Poland for. James Ward-Prowse and the rest of the squad. So I suppose looking at that on paper, it's going to get progressively more difficult. But are you confident of three wins? I was certainly very confident of three wins until about 12 hours ago when um, the um, German government decided that we weren't a, um, I think they called it a mutation zone. And, and the UK is now just high risk. So that now means that Robert Lewandowski will be available for, to play for Poland. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of that's kind of put a slight damper on on things from from that particular game's perspective. But I mean the other two, I don't I don't see any uh, any issues. I, I mean to be honest, we I would like to think that Southgate will put out basically a, a second string team, basically all the players who have got kind of something to prove, with a view to sticking ten past San Marino because. Realistically, that's the sort of level we need to be aiming at. Belgium stuck 10 past them a couple of years ago. Poland have done it against them as well in, in the past. And it's possible that top of that group um, between us and Poland could come down to goal difference. Because this, this one for the World Cup, it come, it's um, done on goal difference and not head-to-head record. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at his goal. I mean, I've got to say, he's incredible, isn't he? In the last five years, 47, this is not even international level, this is club level, 47 and 43, 48 and 41, 47 and 40, 47 and 55, and this season he's got 36 and 42. Some player. Yeah. Yeah. It frustrates the hell out of me that he's not mentioned in the same bracket as Mbappe and Haaland. Mm. I'd I'd have Lewandowski over either of those two at the moment. Yeah. I think he's that good. It's because of his age, though, isn't it? But, you know, we've got nothing to worry about because England have got Harry Maguire. (laughs) 692 Mm. goals in 478 career games at club level. That's pretty impressive. Anyway, we digress, I know. But, yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. Obviously, they've got Jan Bednarek at the back as well, Steve, so uh, we'll do well to get past him, won't we? But, uh, yeah, Glenn, um, obviously Ralph Hasenhutl hasn't sounded overly delighted the last month or so about some of his players heading off to different corners of the globe during a a pandemic. Um, I know you won't necessarily have the same personal worry about them as uh, Ralph does but does it still seem a little bit odd that there's international football going on around the world do you think or not uh yeah it's it's plainly ridiculous but it, it is what it is I think we've discussed this before that no one out of the out of you know out of the organization of football is prepared to give any ground whatsoever and play less games or postpone them or put them later on there is time to get these games in later on. I mean, you know, the news changes every day about um, whether it's safe to travel abroad on holiday this year. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Some countries will be OK. Some countries won't be OK. Um, it just it seems absurd to me. And you can guarantee that there will be some sort of outbreak somewhere which will affect one team or t'other when they uh, when they uh, come back from uh, a foreign country. But I reckon that that'll be where it all where it'll all be an absolute mess in the summer, Azerbaijan, because I'm pretty sure that they won't have been actually counting and uh, getting things sorted. It just seems seems implausible that they've got that they've got their 
got any sort of handle on this. Indeed. All right. Well, as you say, yeah, hopefully everyone everywhere gets back safely, particularly Stuart Armstrong, uh, third time lucky maybe. Anyway, speaking on global terms, we're looking forward to our next TSP VIP event with our global patrons this coming Wednesday at 8pm UK time. Look forward to seeing those of you who can make it along. Steve, Glenn, Dan and myself will all be there in attendance. Okay, underpinned by those very same patrons, this is TSP 155. This is the Total Saints Podcast with Ben Stanfield, Steve Grant, Glenn Delacour, and the Athletics Dan Sheldon. In what's been a really topsy-turvy season for Saints, we ended the current run of fixtures with a comfortable FA Cup quarterfinal win over Bournemouth, three goals to nil. Glenn, we spoke about it last week. Uh, I think we felt if Saints turned up and performed like we know they can, they would have far too much quality. In the end, a really dominant and well-deserved victory. Yeah, and a very easy one as well. We we played as well as we had to play to beat a pretty desperate opposition. I couldn't believe how poor they were. Bearing in mind the, the narrative before the game was about how it was, you know, the biggest game in their history. I saw written somewhere and all that sort of stuff. And they uh, they couldn't be. They didn't seem like they were really bothered. I thought it was really interesting on the match of the day highlights. They they um, highlighted the huddle before the game, uh, the Bournemouth huddle, where they were just kind of stood around looking at our players. There was no one you know, giving it the big one, trying to G anybody up or anyone, anything like that. And um, yeah, it's interesting, but and that's how they played. They didn't seem to believe they could win. And uh, I think if the, the goal that was disallowed by VAR after Kyle Walker-Peters run, I think if that had gone in, it could have ended up being a really big score. But, uh, but at the end of it, you know, we got, our, we got the third goal and we kind of sacked the rest of the game off, really. I mean, we had a couple of chances, but we didn't really bust a gut. We just managed the game reasonably well and, uh, and got to the end, but yeah, it was um, it was enjoyable. You know, we, we've had a lot of rubbish to put up with the last the last few weeks, so it was uh, it was enjoyable to watch what was a pretty comfortable win, and there were some good individual performances in there, as I'm sure we're going to touch on later. Yeah, we will. Dan, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? There'll be lots of neutrals and lots of Saints fans, probably the pessimistic ones, saying, "Oh, the Championship side and Bournemouth are rubbish, and don't get too carried away, and all those sort of things." But over the 90 minutes, as uh, Glenn mentioned there, I mean, it could have been a, a lot more than 3-0. We obviously had the two goals disallowed. I mean, Saints, to be fair to them, kept going until the last minute as well. Um, I think we all remember Stuart Armstrong's lung-busting run before Redmond whipped it wide and things like that. So I, I hesitate to use the word classy because I think you have to put it into perspective. But ultimately, class did show in the end. Absolutely. I think the word I'd use is probably professional. It was just... They turned up, Ralph had been very particular in the week building up to the game. There was no way I don't think he was prepared to lose this match uh, against Bournemouth. Uh, absolutely no way. That, the way he was talking in the media in terms of it maybe being their biggest game of their year for Southampton, and you're thinking, wow, I mean, that's some statement given some of the games they've played this season already. And yeah, it was 100% focus application. They went there with a job in hand they, and they were under pressure when they went. Had, imagine if they'd lost to Bournemouth. They were under pressure. Bournemouth didn't it was nothing. Bournemouth had a free hit essentially. They had a few injuries. Their fullbacks were injured. Their their central midfielders were out. So it was always going to be difficult for them. But Saints just just bullied them, just off off the pitch, just absolutely ripped shreds out of them. And I think Steve Cook's still trying to get up the, off the grass after Nathan Redmond's <laughs> goal because that was just. I mean, he just, he just he, wears a permanently confused look, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, uh. it was just. I mean, I, I'm sure he's. I, I mean, I'm. 
I'm sure he's a really nice guy and stuff, but you're just thinking if if that's the best you've got and like he's your cat. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit harsh on Steve Cook, but the he minute talks he talks a better committed, game than he plays, Dan. That's what I get with yeah, Steve Cook. Yeah, I remember. I remember interviewing him in a mix zone when I was a freelance, and he started, and we were all, it was ahead of a Southampton game, and he said, you know, we're Bournemouth and we want to dominate the South Coast, and then they went and lost, and it's just like. There's a lot of talk coming up. Like, I think Bournemouth are obsessed with this game to kind of make it a rivalry. It's not. And yeah, back to the point. Yeah, brilliant performance from Southampton. It was, all, all they could have done was turn up when they kept another clean sheet yet to concede in the competition. Redmond, why can't you play like that every single week? Yeah, plenty of positives. But for me, the important thing is, is they have to replicate that level of performance against Burnley. Steve, Dan used an interesting word there, pressure. I think as we discussed last week, you know, pressure was all on Saints, but it was yet another clean sheet in this season's tournament, four in four games. And I think as probably everyone's seen, the last time that Saints won four consecutive FA Cup games without conceding a single goal in the same campaign was, of course, 1975-76 when we won the Cup. So there's a good omen. But uh, I think, you know, ultimately the the whole team did a, a really good job, as Glenn and Dan have mentioned. But I'd like to pick out a couple, starting with Nathan Redmond, as Dan's just mentioned there, Steve, because, you know, when he had the ball yesterday, he looked very threatening um he obviously scored two goals and an assist and two goals yesterday is as many as he's uh, managed in his 34 games before that two goals and uh, I suppose a reminder of what he can do when he, he shows some belief and confidence and I refer back to my earlier point about uh, championship side and things like that but you can only beat what's in front of you and arguably you know I, I know we'll come on to Stuart Armstrong in a moment but he was man of the match for lots of people uh yeah definitely um I mean ultimately the the end kind of production is is the justification for him getting that man in the match and and rightly so I think Armstrong was kind of influential all, o- all over the pitch but Redmond was the one that that got the got the key sort of interventions in the game with the two two goals the assist obviously the one chance late on that that you mentioned earlier that was I mean from where I was from where I was looking I was thinking has that actually gone through the net and gone <laughs> gone to the side because yeah. it, it, it genuinely looked as if it had gone inside the post on first viewing but yeah he was he was excellent and I mean as you say I mean you've got to kind of put it into the context in that the defence that he was running up against were bang average at best mm. and but, slow very oh, yeah, slow yeah I mean yeah. That, that was I think that was the key that they were both slow and offered a lot of space there was a there was a lot of space in between Bournemouth's midfield two of Wilshire and uh, Billing and the back four and I mean we know the back four were going to sit relatively deep because they're slow but it just just gave Redmond so much room to like as soon as the ball got passed between the lines Redmond knew that he he didn't have anybody up his up his backside he was able to take a touch turn and then start running and all of a sudden when when you give any player who's good at dribbling as as he is I mean, regardless of what a lot of our fans would say, he's good at dribbling. It's the it's the pass and the and the sort of decision making of which direction to go sometimes where where he kind of comes unstuck. But in in terms of raw dribbling, there aren't there aren't that many better than him. Mm, mm. And I mean, if you if you're going to give him that time and space, then yeah, he's he's gonna he's gonna cause absolute carnage. And and that's exactly what happened. And he was yeah. I say he was he was excellent. And I guess the international break kind of comes at a bad time in that respect because now. Two weeks 
until until his next game is he going to be able to replicate it back in the Premier League we'll see well that's an interesting point Dan isn't it because Ralph said after the game and I think we'd all agree with him you know he wants Nathan Redmond to do that once a week not once a year that sort of performance and uh, you know he frustrated me last week by coming on and basically having a chat with Adam Lallana and not doing anything else but again you know when he shows potential like that and as I said earlier it's belief and confidence we said it I think it was the Wolves game wasn't it when uh, they played them in the cup and that was the first time Ralph had tried to further forward and it automatically meant that he had to kind of get the ball and go forward because he was playing up front and he's such a better player when he takes players on and you know drives forward and things like that that's what you want to see him doing every week yeah and that's one of the reasons that Ralph does play him up front alongside Adams um alongside Ings at the time I think was playing up front with and when Adams was out the team but yeah it's that because he drops a bit deeper and then he can pick the ball up and as Steve as Steve said if he's running at you with the ball and he's got a bit of space he can be very dangerous but the the key point is yes it was a brilliant performance but what Ralph said was right he has to do that maybe not every week but maybe three weekends out of four he has to do that kind of performance it's all well and good doing it against Bournemouth in the championship but where was that when he came on against Brighton and the team really needed that level of performance that has got to be the biggest thing and as we've all kind of said it's just about him being consistent but as you mentioned Ben he, he he played and he just tore Bournemouth to pieces. You can only beat what's in front of you, as, as you mentioned. And I think he must have been chomping at the bit during the week, or he must have shown something in the week. Because I think everyone was a little bit surprised when they saw Musa and Nathan in the starting 11. Glenn was. <laughs> well, yeah. I, mean, no, well, I don't I, think Glenn was the only one. No, no, no. Um, I've, but, taken a, I've taken a bit of stick for that, but I, I can't stand by it because he didn't deserve to start the game. Having been called out for doing nothing, when he came on as a sub, you know, well, the manager Ralph, Ralph said that yeah. the subs made his team worse. Yeah. So he must've done something. There must've been something in the week that Redmond have, and Jennifer have responded to Ralph's criticism or whatever, but they must've had a brilliant week regardless. And it's, it's capped off in that. And now there's an international break. I think it's probably, I know it's cliche that you never want one when you've just played like that, but I think it's probably a good thing because it gives him a bit more time to kind of come off cloud nine and focus again on, like not getting too ahead of himself after that one performance, because again, he we he, we have to see that against Burnley, um, and then it will count for something, in my opinion. But yeah, let's enjoy it for what it was. Agreed. Um, for yeah. now, no, totally. And uh, secondly, gentlemen, obviously um, Stuart Armstrong. I mean, I, I know we speak about him most weeks, but you gave him man of the match in the GDLC player ratings. I got your initials around the right way yeah. tonight. Um, I also <laughs> thought he was um, you know exceptional across the 90 minutes. I think that's the thing, you know, in stops and starts. Nathan Redmond was excellent, but I totally agreed with you when I saw your man the match. For me, Stuart Armstrong, I think I tweeted, and I think you know it's had about 800 likes. It seems to have gone pretty well, but uh, £7 million, it always just looks an absolute bargain for Stuart Armstrong. I mean, just uh, another brilliant performance from him as well. Bundles of energy. Yeah, it took it took him a while to get up and running as a Saints player, didn't it? Mm. But, um, I mean, he was playing for Mark Hughes, wasn't he, to start <laughs> with? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, so take anyone a long time. But he, again, it was just a, he highlighted a, a, the the weaknesses in the Bournemouth team because they didn't want to chase him. The amount of times he just sort of burst through midfield and they, they didn't want to go with him. Um, I, I just thought he put in a complete 90-minute performance. Whereas, yeah, as you said, I mean, I thought Redmond was actually quite poor for the first half an hour and then he got and then he got involved in the first goal and then for half, you know, he was pretty poor for half an hour. Then he was Lionel Messi. This is Messi. like Souness and Pogba. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, was Lionel, then, he, then he was Lionel Messi for half an hour and then we'd won the game. And, and it's, but Armstrong, I thought, was, you know, from minute one right through to the end, I, I just thought he was, he was excellent. And what I like about him is that if we build up play down Armstrong's side, I always feel more confident that there's going to be a, 
an end product, whereas on the left-hand side, it's a little bit hit and miss sometimes. But Armstrong's side, he's such a, a good footballer, an intelligent footballer. I think as Steve said last week, Glenn, it's like, I think, he, if I remember correctly, Steve says something along the lines of, Stuart Armstrong had a poor game against Brighton as he had at Man City and it's kind of the flip side of that isn't it if Stuart Armstrong plays well Saints tend to play well yeah yeah I think defensively he can be a bit ropey at times when he's not when he's not quite on it he can kind of disappear if we haven't got the ball but when he when he's on it again he he was helped by playing against not great opposition but uh no, I thought I thought he was excellent throughout, and uh, yeah, that's why that's why I went for him. Not that it matters who the hell is man of the match, but yeah, that was just uh, just my opinion on things. Well, Jack Wilshere trying again, to keep up he? with him. Oh well, yeah, well, Jack Wilshere was a good player seven years ago, but <laughs> people still seem to think that he's um, he's got something. He's playing for seven, seven ankles ago, I think. Yeah, he's playing playing for Bournemouth for a reason, isn't he? Uh, Ralph, Ralph said after the game that Armstrong is uh, is Southampton's best ball carrier. Mm-hmm. I think we'd just, agree with that. Yeah, I mean, one per- one player I'd like to pick out, I know perhaps overstepping the mark, but at where I was sat at Bournemouth, it was incredibly close to the sideline. And in the first half, this, watching Kyle Walker-Peters up close, yeah, he is just an absolute class act. We all know he's a class act, but I think he is the most influential Southampton player in, uh, in that team. I think he is that good like in attack, in defence. Just to, Even though he was offside, the touch yeah. Yeah. for that ball over it was just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and he's as good at in defence as he is going forward and even I mean I've interviewed him a few times and he is one of the politest guys you'll ever meet and even when he's like protesting or giving the opponent a bit of needle because I could hear him he still does it with so much class yeah yeah it's he's just what a guy he is like brilliant just phenomenal 12 I mean you said seven million pound for Armstrong's a bargain I think 12 million quid for Walker Peters is a bloody bargain well, as well if you add that together that's 19 million I'm pretty sure that's what Bournemouth played for Dominic Solanke and what Southampton played for Carrillo. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Yeah, let's move on from that one. But uh, I suppose, um, yeah, just to sort of finally reflect um, on the, I suppose the overall game then, uh, Dan, from Ralph's point of view as well. I mean, obviously getting to the semi-final as uh, it's been well highlighted. Of course, his first uh, first time we ever saw him with Saints was in the the press box with uh, Martin Simmons and Ross Wilson and people like that watching that uh, famous, if you can call it that, Tottenham three Saints one game. I think Charlie Austin even scored that night, didn't he? And uh, for him as well, you know, to get to Wembley alongside the the players and the fans. I mean, we've all got something to look forward to now, the other side of the international break. But for, for Ralph as well, you know, great um, reward for his efforts over the last couple of years and uh, that tie that we now know will be against Leicester City. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with what you've just said. It's I, th- I asked Ralph about it after the game. I think this is that, I mean, he'd never gone past the second round before as a manager. So he's now in the semi-final. And as sad as it is, I was in the car on the way home from Bournemouth and I was thinking, I wonder if he'll wear a suit at Wembley. Because he... he, he he obviously wore a suit at Leipzig for a bit in the Champions League, but hated it. So went back to the, the track suit. And I thought, well, maybe if they reach the final, he may have to wear a suit. But I mean, that, that was the one question I had going home was what, what will Ralph wear? It's a big one, isn't it? It is a massive question. Yeah. It, it I don't think we've the, got... It, it will set the tone. Yeah, I don't think we've got enough time to really investigate it now. I mean, it's probably something for us to all take away and come I back with. That's something for like a 2,000-word athletic article yeah, down definitely, the line. So, definitely. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, look forward to that. I'll find the German tailor that kitted him out at Leipzig and all sorts. Dear, dear. Well, here's what Ralph had to say post-Bournemouth via SouthamptonFC.com. Yeah, it was a good performance. We knew that it is a tough game here. Uh, I think it was important to have the right mindset against this team. Uh, we know that uh, they were very focused on this game also. 
and we knew that it's a big chance for us to yeah, to achieve something big. And, and for us going to Wembley now, it's only the semi-final, but it's the, the first big step, I think. And uh, yeah, this I, could, I think we could feel this from the first minute today. This team really wanted to go there, and uh, this is the right mindset. And then combined with a with a good game plan, I think, where we have worked very hard during the week to get this. Uh, leads to a, to a very, very good uh, and deserved uh, win. I had a few very um, clear meetings this week, I think, uh, to, to tell them what I expect from, the, from us for this club on the weekend. And uh, it, it looks that everybody was very, very clear what we have to do today. And I think when we are working like we did today and when we are playing like we did today, quick, not always turning back, more in front, then we are a good side, and I think today we show that we have this, this quality. Fantastic, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, absolutely dream for me also as a manager, and uh, to go there and to play a game there, it's fantastic. And yeah, I, I, I didn't really think about it so far, to be honest. I was so focused on the game today. It will come when the time is ready. Now we have to focus on the league again, and then hopefully have the time to concentrate on this game. Steve, I suppose um, you know over the last few weeks we know it's been a, a tough run for Saints. So how much of a boost do you think the, the Wembley appearance can offer them now? Because I suppose the flip side of it is sometimes you, you look at teams that are struggling and when they've got a, a Wembley-type appearance, it can kind of deflect the attention away from the, the league. So I, I suppose it can go both ways, but ultimately, if we're trying to be positive here, something that uh, you know can boost morale. And uh, as Dan said earlier, the last thing they wanted to do was lose that game yesterday. So it's a win and some confidence heading into the international break. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've got to be in it to win it, haven't you, as, as they say. I mean, whoever we drew out of, out of the hat was always going to be always going to be a difficult one. We're always going to be um, the outsiders in, in that draw. So I think we've probably done OK with the with the draw and we and we go into it with an idea of how we can win. And then it and then it comes down to on, to on the day. And I, th- I think we're kind of fortunate in that there's only, what, three Either two or three games between um, between now and and the semi final. In fact, two, I think, isn't it? Yep. Burnley and West Brom. Yeah. So and those those are two games that you would think. I mean, Burnley's one of those that can go either way. But West Brom away. That's a game that you've got to be targeting to win. And then you go into the go into the semi final against Leicester, full of confidence. You just just got to win, and there's abs- and you've put to bed any slight lingering doubts about um, about relegation. And you go to Wembley and kind. Kind of pressure, pressures off to an extent. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, that that semi final a few years back against Chelsea was was kind of similar in um, in terms of the position we found ourselves in, and obviously huge outsiders against Chelsea. But for probably an hour of that game, we were we were in we were well in the game. Chelsea hadn't didn't really threaten in the first half, and then we just sw- we switched off after half time for them to give them the lead. And it was always it was always going to be difficult at, at that point. And that's basically what we've got. To, that's that's going to be our issue is is individual moments. I mean, at the end of the day, if you if you get beaten by a better team, then then fair enough. But if you if you go off the pitch knowing that you've you've competed um, through 90 minutes. But the, the the kind of swing events have been self-inflicted, and you've come out on the wrong end of it. Then that's that's when kind of you you have those sort of lingering regrets and and what ifs and things like that. And that's that's kind of what what you need to guard against in in a sort of big semi-final or final, really, mm, I think. Yeah. It's weird how it's worked out this season because uh, obviously we played Arsenal in the Cup, then played them in the league. We then played Wolves in the Cup, we then played them immediately in the league. Because the Crystal Palace game is now going to be arranged, looking at the fixtures, we'll obviously play uh, Leicester. And then at the moment, because Crystal Palace will be rescheduled, the next game in the league 
will be Leicester City. So it's funny how it's worked out, isn't it? There's a boring stat for you. But uh, Glenn, just before we move on briefly, yeah, your your reflections on the draw. I suppose for all of us, it was avoid Man City and you got a chance. Yeah, I put a little poll on Twitter saying, just as the Leicester Man United game kicked off, who do, who do we want? And the uh, the consensus was Chelsea. Now, I, I chose Chelsea because I thought they're a team who don't smash anyone out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. we've got a bit negative about things recently. <laughs> I thought, well, we know Man United can smash us out of sight, and we know Man City can as well. So I was I was picking Chelsea. I assumed that Man United were going to beat Leicester. I have to say, and they were garbage. And they well, and Leicester were very good. So they they totally deserved to go through. Fair play. But, I mean, today, today's the sort of game that United that at the start of the season United were turning that around in the second half and winning. Yeah. Even, even without playing particularly well, they would just suddenly some, the ball would break to them and it would go in off the defender's arse or something like that. It, well, would, it, was, it was infuriating at the start of the season because they were bad away from home. And was, yet they won, what, their first eight games or something? Well, like away? at St Mary's, they it's, were pretty it average. Insane. Yeah, it was, it's, it was insane. I thought it was really interesting watching today the difference between a manager who knows what he's doing and one one who really doesn't. Um, Brendan, oh, Brendan Solskjaer's, Solskjaer's just a complete blagger, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, Brendan Rodgers, I've given him stick in the past, mainly for his Liverpool stuff because of all the rubbish, rubbish he used to come out with. But he has, you know, he, he's dealt with the fact he's had three pretty important players missing in, you know, Madison, Barnes and Justin. He's had all the, he's had missing, he, he's had him missing, he's had Ndidi missing at various times, Vardy missing. And, you know, they're still an excellent team. And he, he knows his squad, he knows his players, and he, he knows how to set them up against different opposition because he does, he does quite often change things around. Um, and he, he managed that game brilliantly, I have to say. So it's, it's obviously going to be a very tough game. Sure. We're obviously going to get lots of 9-0 stuff thrown <laughs> at us. But, I mean, to be honest, if, we, if we'd known the four semi-finalists in advance of the draw, we would have probably picked to play Leicester rather than Chelsea or, or Manchester City. Certainly more than Manchester City so uh, yeah it's um, it's okay and I've, I've I've come out of it sort of like really looking forward to it because we know we can beat them it's not like Manchester City where you kind of think oh my god we've got absolutely no chance but against Leicester you know on a, on a good day we could beat them so uh, yeah bring it on should be fun as long as we're safe from relegation <laughs> exactly yeah we can enjoy it then can't we but uh, just to finish on the Bournemouth game I, uh, I couldn't move on without quickly calling out uh, Sam Surridge a B-Tech Matt Ritchie as I saw him called earlier uh, on today for his uh, coward's challenge on uh, Mohamed Salasu at the end bearing in mind Martin Atkinson seemed to give uh, relatively uh, zero interest in protecting uh, player welfare across the game. It was nice to see at least a yellow card uh, given, but uh, yeah, hopefully what goes around comes around, it was, Sam. It, so. was a, it, it was a bit, um, it was a little bit Ben Thatchery, wasn't it? Was, it? Oh, yeah, it was disgraceful. It was a red card for me, and I think it was for many Saints fans, and just more of the point, he could have uh, done serious damage, couldn't he? Idiot. It was um, It was a nice hockey challenge, for Christ's sake. I mean, it I was ridiculous. Yes, there we go. Anyway, yeah. finally down then. Shea Adams was unlucky to uh, have a, at least... Uh, you know, uh, one goal ruled out. Uh, fantastic finish for him, actually. Obviously, it was correctly uh, ruled out by VAR at Bournemouth. But earlier this week, um, Shelley, as we uh, all uh, love to uh, know him now, has become Mook Shelley, uh, having been called up by Scotland. So I was just going to ask, Dan, just to finish this section, what you made of that decision by Shea, because I know Ralph said that you'd obviously discussed with uh, Shea about it and things like that as well. And uh, I suppose just how much you think international football can help develop his game, because that's something we all want to see Shea doing, right? Yeah, and I think that's the, something that I've kind of had in conversations over the past couple of days, few days with people at the club, that it's a great opportunity for Shea to to improve. He's going to be playing on the international stage, and that's only, hopefully only going to benefit Southampton as long as he returns fit without an injury. And for Shea personally, it's 
of course it's a big moment why he picked scotland i i mean i, I don't know the weather's nice i, up I here, guess yeah. yeah maybe i mean i guess you'd look at it from his point of view and you'd think well what are the chances of getting in the england team or even getting anywhere near the england squad because he's obviously turned scotland down in the past so something would have something's changed in that and whether he thinks i've got a more realistic opportunity to to play international football for scotland I'll, I'll go for that i'm sure it's more nuanced than just that so yeah i mean i everyone should be happy for him he deserves it he's played well over the last few weeks he played well at the start of the season so he's a good striker and hopefully comes back learns a bit and hits the ground running when he comes back as well This is the Total Saints Podcast, proudly underpinned by our TSP patrons. Okay, to finish this week's pod, with no Premier League fixture to preview next weekend, I'm going to get the guys to answer some of your questions about Saints. These concern Danny Ings, Ralph Hasenhutl, and more Ralph Hasenhutl in the playbook. First up, having waited patiently for a couple of weeks, is TSP patron Michael, who asked the following question about Danny Ings. Michael said, does anybody think, given Danny Ings' struggles over the last few months and his seeming reluctance to sign a new contract, that we might need to consider cashing in on him this summer? With another transfer window looming where we will likely have little to no money to spend, and with key areas in our squad that need strengthening, surely we can't risk losing him on a free in 18 months' time and may just need to bite the bullet if there is interest from a team which is competing in Europe. Glenn, let's get your sort of fans view on it first, and then, Dan, uh, maybe we can get your uh, sort of neutral expert thoughts on it, if that's all right. So, Glenn, do you think we're going to be uh, almost encouraged slash need to sell Danny Ings this summer or not? Um, I don't think we're going to need to sell him. It's, it's, it's an interesting one because, as Steve has quite often said, whenever this question has come up in the past, who's going to buy him? You know, who's going to buy him? Um, I mean, West Ham is the, the one I thought of as, as a possibility because they haven't got a striker, but I just West Ham are an outside bet to qualify for the Champions League. But it, who knows? I mean, the fact that he's had an, another kind of injury-plagued season is not going to go well for him with, with regards to, to attracting another club. If he'd, had, if he'd have had another season like last year where he'd scored 25 goals and played 40 games, then uh, it may have been a different story. So I don't think we're, we're desperate for the money. He's, you know, we paid 20 million for him. Um, if, if we sell him now, what fee are we going to get with one year left on his contract? It's going to be 20, 25 million tops, I'd have thought. Is, is it worth keeping him for another year and, and him, and him going out of contract? I have a feeling that he'll, he'll be, he'll be waiting until the, the transfer window, waiting to see if there's any interest. And I don't think there probably will be that much and he'll end up signing a new deal with us, whether it will be for the, for the uh, for the amount that's been agreed so far, I don't know. There may be a bit of cat and mouse go on where um, Saints of uh, Saints will probably knock the money down a little bit if um, if it doesn't get signed by a certain time. You know, Martin Semmers always talked about you know wanting to plan for next season or wanting to plan for the following season. So you know, God willing, we'll be safe um, and we know we'll be in the Premier League. He he and Ralph will want to know whether Danny Ings is going to be there next year because obviously if he's not. We're going to need to recruit someone else because if if we if we don't, then we are going to be really struggling next year in terms of scoring enough goals. So yeah, it's uh, it's all it's all going to play out. I hope he stays because I think we're going to struggle to find a player as good as him when he's when he's on form. There's not many clubs of our stature who've got who've who have got a player as good as him up front, and we all know that to to buy forwards costs a hell of a lot of money. So I would rather he stayed, but uh, I think every Every outcome is possible at the moment. Yeah, Dan. Look, we um, 
it's probably six weeks or so since uh, Ralph and Saints and that have really had to go into a lot of depth. It's sort of gone back into the background a little bit, hasn't it? But of course, Danny's been injured during that time as well. And I couldn't agree more with Glenn. You know, firstly, we want to see him back fit. Hopefully that will happen after the international break. I think we'd all love to see him stay at Saints. But do you think the goalposts have moved for either side during that window, Dan? Or do you think it's still kind of, you know, momentum and sort of waiting and seeing what happens in the summer? I think the goalposts have moved from Danny's side, if I'm being honest. I think I agree with everything Glenn said, by the way. And one point I would hammer home is that if Danny had had another season like last year, then you'd have had clubs at the top end of the league that would happily pay 30 million quid to take Danny Ings, or I think, to take him away. They'd pay over the odds for a player in the the final year of his contract, but EV scored 20-plus goals two years in a row. They can afford to do that whilst they wait for a Haaland or, or someone of that ilk. I think the fact he's been injured and he hasn't been as productive this season as last season, even when he's been playing, his goal scoring record hasn't been as good. I think that does dent his chances of getting a big move. Now, whether that big move would even be there, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm not talking to people at Man City or anything like that. So, I mean, I'd be I'd be surprised at this stage, given the injuries, the, the scoring, if it was to end up in him going to a club like that. I think West Ham is an interesting one, but from conversations I've had, it doesn't sound like he's entirely keen on West Ham. So it's, I mean, if he's aiming for the Man Cities, then I just don't think Man City are going to come calling now. I, I just can't see it. I don't know why they would. I think they would have had he, again, as I said, had a really good season because they can justify spending that sort of money on a 28, 29-year-old with no sell-on value. It's kind of back pocket change for them. However, I think in terms of, again, what Glenn said, it gets to a point, and it got to this point with Pierre, where it became clear he wasn't going to sign the contract. And at that point, you start looking around. All right, okay, well, we need to plan for life after Pierre now. Look what Ralph did in Project Restart. Now, I know from conversations I've had that if it became clear that Danny wasn't going to sign a contract, and in the summer, a club, let's just use Tottenham as an example, because we're talking about Pierre, so let's use Tottenham. If Tottenham came in with a bid, I don't know, that was just kind of insulting, Southampton so they, they're, probably, they're usual they, then. yeah they'd probably rather keep hold of him for another year because I mean, he could be the difference in like 10 million pound in prize money in terms of league position he's that he, on his day he is that good I think if they get to a position where he's not signed and then someone comes in with kind of 20 25 and Danny's made it clear that he's not going to sign then I think you have then I think you have to seriously take a look at that offer because that gives you the money to go out and buy one striker or maybe two strikers they may not be as good as Ings but by the by I mean top top strikers are hard to come by these days anyway so I think that's that's kind of where we're at I I think it's still at an impasse I don't think there's been any kind of significant breakthrough Danny's still waiting to see what his options are Southampton as has been reported countless times have offered him a, a new contract it would make him the highest paid player at the club in the club's history, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we're at, and he's still not signed it. So, yeah, there's, there's not a lot more to add than that, unfortunately. No, great. Well, thanks for the answers, guys. Um, thanks for the question as well, Michael. Um, okay, next is Jake, who sent a question via our totalsaints.co.uk website. Steve, I'm going to come to you on this one. Um, Jake asked, what are your opinions of Ralph's rapport with other backroom staff? I don't want to labour the point because I know it's been discussed since Raul 
leaving and Kit Spitzler's appointment, but it does strike me that there is a lack of involvement from other coaches. Conspiracy, question mark, trying to find excuses, question mark. We'd love to know your thoughts. Um, I suppose my question then, Steve, based on that would be, do you think there's a bit of a, a reshuffle needed in Ralph's coaching staff, or do you feel that um, there's an element of staleness there, or do you feel like, you know, as I think Dan said before, that he likes to just be his own man on the touchline, and ultimately that's the way it's going to be, and it's none of our business, so to speak? What, what's your general thoughts on Ralph's relationship with his coaching staff? It's difficult to tell. I mean, you, you, you obviously don't see an awful lot of interaction between between various members of the coaching staff on TV. And obviously without being at the games, you can't really get a sense for how the relationships are sort of on a date on a sort of general basis on a match day. So it's 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 quite difficult. I mean, I I kind of do wonder whether there needs to be a little bit of a shake up. I mean, we've we've discussed the sort of the sort of proper backroom uh, types before like Dave Watson and um, Kelvin Davis and, and people like that and I mean other than obviously Watson doing um, having been shunted from being the goalkeeper coach to now being our set piece specialist kind of we don't really know what these guys do who specializes in what area what um, because I mean let's face it we all know which part of the which parts of the team are generally quite good and we know which parts of our team are generally quite bad and we know which bits appear as though they have good plans and which bits appear to be um, either poorly coached or just things don't work for whatever reason. So it'd be interesting to know kind of who who has what sort of specific designation, if there is any. It may just be that they kind of have this sort of generic, well, you're all co- you're all coaches and we'll all uh, muck in together, which, I mean, that, that sounds absolute nonsense for a, for a club at the top level. Surely everyone is, is specialised in something these days. But, yeah, I mean, it... it the, from the outside, I mean, we we don't really hear an as I say, we don't hear an awful lot. But it does seem as if there isn't, there doesn't appear to be the personalities in the on the coaching staff to maybe challenge some of the some of the ideas that Ralph has occasionally. Um, certainly at the start of the season, when when we when we started the season with that absolutely suicidal high line against Spurs, why was there nobody questioning why we were doing that against a team like Spurs who? The only, literally the only thing they've got in attack is pace. So yeah, why why were we just committing absolute suicide in in that game? And it was yeah, you, you kind of wonder whether whether there's kind of just an acceptance. Well, Ralph's going to make all the decisions, and therefore um, nobody ever nobody's ever allowed to criticise. Who knows? It'd be great to get any sort of insight on that, really. Yeah, totally. I mean, Dan, anything you'd add to, uh, just from your sort of knowledge of watching the games or from people you speak to about that i know um, you touched on it briefly before yeah i think first things first no one no one really knows what kind of input they may have in the in the meetings that you know i'm not sat in those meetings at staplewood i'm not on the training pitch at staplewood so no one really knows exactly what kind of how much input the assistants have but what i think the key word for me that steve mentioned was challenge I don't think there's a lot of challenge. It doesn't look like, certainly at the stadium, again, I'm not there at Staplewood every single day, so I can't talk about that, but certainly at the stadium, there doesn't appear to be anyone challenging what Ralph is doing. They may do it behind the scenes, they may do it in the dressing room, but they certainly don't do it on the pitch. No one goes up to him inside. In the, I mean, Richard goes up to him occasionally in the technical area, but the others don't. They kind of just stay there on their roles. Now, I know one of them is in conversation with the analysts, I'm pretty sure that's Dave Watson, I think, is talking to the analysts or he's got them in his ear 
Um, I may be wrong. It may be Fleming. One of them is on was speaking to the analysts during a game. So then that that information is obviously getting fed to Ralph. But yeah, it's just a case of challenge. And I think what Danny did, Danny Roll did, was he would challenge Ralph. I think, and I think he, you know, well, I know he challenged Ralph. So I mean, I don't know. It, it's tough to answer what they really do because none of no, we're not there. We're not at Staplewood. We're not in the meetings. But Ralph is a big personality, and ultimately. It may look bad from the outside that he's not got anyone challenging him, but if it goes wrong, Ralph Harton, who took it to sack, the others don't. The other assistants don't. They they were there. They predated him, and they may stay beyond him. So, in that kind of bubble in the cutthroat industry of management, I guess you do want it to be your way or the highway. But challenge, I'd I'd like to see him challenged a bit more, certainly at the ground when things are going. Like we could all see what was going wrong against Tottenham to use that example. Someone yeah, but, should be I mean, in his ear be... barking. But to be fair, we didn't, you know, something obviously got said or he worked it out for himself because we played the high line in the very first game against Crystal Palace. We played it against Tottenham and got absolutely smashed, as we all know. But we haven't done it since. So something obviously changed. Yannick Vestergaard came in and saved the day at Burnley. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, maybe that was maybe that was what what drove it because obviously with with Yannick not being the quickest on the turn you can't play on the halfway line and, and expect to get away with it. So maybe that drove it. But either way. You know, just playing devil's advocate here a little bit. Either Ralph worked it out for himself or it got communicated to him somehow that this this wasn't working and, and, and it changed. So Yeah, I mean that's that's why I stress the point that we're not in those meetings. So no. we don't you know, we don't know. You know, we don't we can all sit here and speculate, but we don't know what is said in those those talks they have so all right well jake likewise thanks for your question much appreciated an interesting uh, discussion point i think for all of us and uh, all of you listening no doubt um okay our last question is from lewis and it relates to ralph and his playbook um lewis says and it's a bit of a long one guys so bear with me um i'd like to ask for your thoughts on the new ssc playbook it may seem slightly short-sighted to ask this when we're in the middle of a poor run on the pitch compared to earlier in the season for example but i'm thinking longer term really to set some context the first team are currently 14th in the premier league have lost 9-0 yet again this season, albeit with several mitigating factors, are currently on a run of 10 defeats in 12 league matches and have conceded 51 goals so far, second only to West Brom. At time of writing, the B team is second bottom of their division with only 4 wins in 18 games. They've also conceded 41 goals at an average of almost 2.5 of a match and have recently lost 7-1 and 5-1. Finally, the under-18s are bottom of their league with only 1 win in 14 matches, Ironically, that was 8-2 against Leicester City. However, they too have conceded an average of over three goals per game this season and have lost 6-0, 7-1 and 7-0 along the way. Well, I think we all appreciate the SFC playbook is a longer-term strategy. How important do you think it is for immediate results to improve across the club so confidence and buy-in to the playbook are achieved? Also, do you think we have the players and or coaching staff currently at the club to successfully implement the playbook? Or is there going to be a real need to scout the right players at all levels and coach the coaches to help embed the proposed playing styles, which will ultimately reap the plan rewards? On the flip side, what if it doesn't work? The club seem fully vested in this playbook, but as mentioned just now, the current setup top to bottom seems to be highlighting just how much work there is to do. Lastly, I appreciate due to the significant number of injuries in the first team over the past few months, lots of lads have had to step up from under-18s to B-team and B-team to first-team, so do you think that could be one of the main reasons in some of the early playbook challenges? Anyway, would love to hear your general thoughts. 
Cheers, Lewis. Cracking one out. Good question, though, Lewis. Dan, look, you're probably the closest to this of all of us, having spoken with Ralph a, a fair bit about it. You know, regularly watch games. I know you interviewed Matt Crocker, didn't you, before the season started about the playbook and things like that. So, in a nutshell, Dan, are you confident the playbook will work if it's given time? Ben, can you just read out that question again? I didn't get it. Whew, right, here we go. Right, this question's from Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Just say no and no. I can't. Dan. Should we? Should we? <laughs> no, it was a good question. It was a good question. I think one that that probably needs asking, answering. Um, sorry, but I think within the the question, I think Lewis kind of answered a few of the points himself. It's this is clearly a long term thing. Now the results are bad. There's no getting away from that. But the players that would normally be playing for the B team are training with the first team, so they're not playing for the B team. I mean, in terms of the under-18s, I don't know. I've not really had any conversations about the under-18s, but I'd imagine I could be completely wrong. But if the the B-team players are stepping up to train with the first team, I imagine the best under-18s are training, stepping up to train with the B-team. So I guess it's a bit like that. The the (laughs) under-18s. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The under-11s are then stepping up to the under-16s and all sorts. But... I think that has to be taken into account. And I, I remember I, I interviewed Dave Horseman, the B-team coach, back in, oh, I don't know when it was now, maybe November, early December, I can't remember. But one thing he said to me, and it, 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 did, it struck me and it stayed with me since, and that's they were playing poor. They had a bad run of results at the time. And I asked him, what's more important for the whole kind of B-team pathway playbook thing? Is it winning the Premier League 2? Would that be seen as a success? if none of the players are able to play for the first team or are able to play how the first team play? And the answer was no. And then the caveat was, well, if they finish, let's say they finish 10th and avoid relegation by three points, but four players get into the first team and impress Ralph with the fact they know his system, would that be seen as success? And the answer was yes. It sounds like development is taking precedence over winning or results I think they're more interested in development than they are winning every single week now you'd hope that the long-term goal of this is that eventually it does turn to wins and these are players look we saw it wasn't easy for the first team and their professionals to get used to what exactly what Ralph wanted to do and all the automatisms that he speaks about every single week now these are kids that have been in the academy for however many years have played a certain way for however many years and are now having to to change everything they've been taught they kind of have to like unwind and learn again so it's not going to be easy for them and there are, I'm sure there are some very good coaches in the academy but I'm sure I don't think I'd be being too disrespectful I said none of them are probably as good as Ralph now Ralph was with the first team so he's not going to be going down to the under 14s to lead their sessions because he hasn't got the time I think that has to be taken into account that even the coaches are learning. The coaches would have had these certain methods that they would have used for however many years. Now, all of a sudden, they've got to change that and coach the sessions that Ralph would coach. That, I'm sure, takes time. The whole thing just takes time. The results are bad, absolutely. But I think I think you judge the playbook in five years. I don't think you judge it now. I think you look at it over a longer period of time. And if, I mean, the numbers you read out, I mean, I've lost track of all the numbers, but if they're still as bad as is that in five time, <laughs> then I think well. you can say, well, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. Yeah. But now, now I don't think you can say it now. I think the results aren't great, but look at the circumstances for the under 18s and, and the B team this season, where I'm sure they've got players training up a couple of age groups and all sorts. So 
although not great, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much now. But if it's awful in five years, then maybe a rethink yeah. could be needed. And Glenn, what's your view as a, a fan then? Um, I suppose you know I speak for myself here, but I, you know certainly my view was that I was I'm, I'm comfortable that it was always going to take some time. You, know, you can't just come in and go, well, this is what we're going to do, and everyone picks it up in two weeks. You know, it was always going to take a bit of time, right? Absolutely, yeah. And you know, it it, it is about development. Obviously, it's nice for everybody if you win some games, but at that level, it is all about development, and the players will know that, and and the coaches know that. If you if you go back to Les Reed's day, it was all about players coming through and being sold on for lots of money, wasn't it? And and it's it's about individual players. And I think the point Dan made about you know players playing like upper team, if you like. The other reason is people who would normally be in the B team. I mean, I'm off the top of my head. I'm thinking Slattery, Vokins, Valerie, Sims. They're all out on loan. They would be in that B team, so the B team would probably get better results. But for whatever reason, we've decided that it's best for those players to be out on loan because it's better for them individually. So it's about those individual players' development or moving them on eventually. Um, that is just, that is seen to be more important than the B team getting good results. So you know, I'm I'm comfortable with it. And yeah, Dan summed it up really well there. You obviously don't want to be getting smashed every week because no one enjoys football very much if you're getting smashed every week. But it's um, it, it is a long term thing. And um, I, you know, I think the results are, are very secondary to how the individual players um, develop. So you know, we've had some you know Nathan Teller is a very good example of a player who has come on leaps and bounds because he's he's learned to play the way that Ralph wants a winger you know a winger striker to play he he was a real whenever i saw him sort of play for the B team and in and in videos and stuff like that a couple of years ago he was a real sort of chalk on the boots winger where he he played really really wide and now he comes into the first team and you know he he has an impact as a substitute and and hopefully that that will improve he's not playing that way anymore he's trying to learn how to play more like Stuart Armstrong than a than a winger who you know who hugs the touchline so it's uh, it is a long term thing and people are going to have to be patient with it and you don't want to be be getting beat by some of the headline scores that we're seeing the sixes and sevens and stuff like that but uh, but I think there's a there's a bigger picture here yeah just finally then Steve um as Lewis mentioned the club of uh really invested in Ralph with this we know that but as fans we should want it to succeed and I'm not saying that Lewis didn't say that but ultimately you, we shouldn't be sat there going well hopefully it'll fail because then we can come up with another strategy we want this to work and you know we need to probably support it and, and yeah you know, you know the stats are there at the moment but as Dan said over the next three five years start seeing players come through and that, that sort of pathway has been mentioned before and start to see the fruition of it which is going to help the club top to bottom yeah I mean I think ultimately we've seen kind of glimpses of how that's the style of play that he that he wants can work and can succeed and when you when you see the results it gets when we play it well then yeah i mean there's i mean why why wouldn't a fan want to, want to see their their team at all age groups playing the same way because it creates a pathway and it creates a a kind of natural progression it means that if you sell a player then theoretically there's another one uh, waiting in the wings to take their place or you go out you go external and you go and scout someone who who has the attributes you're you're looking for. I mean, let's face it, if that if that playbook was of the sort of Pulis um, Pulis style football, then people would be would probably have a little bit more justification in wondering what the hell we're doing. But I think when when they see the you kind of hear about the progressive nature of it and you you see the evidence of it in in some of the um, some of the play that the first team has 
has put together. Yeah, if you can get if you can get the kids playing playing the same way from a, from a very early age, then then yeah, I mean that that on the face of it, that sounds entirely positive. And ultimately, what's the point if you're gonna if you're gonna spend dedicate time time and money to put in this in place what's the point in ripping it up after 18 months just because um just because the kids are getting a hiding off off players who are probably two or three years older than them it's yeah i mean it, it, the sort of any sort of backlash to it seems to seems to be a little bit short-sighted at the moment i think yeah. and just just one if i can come in quickly yeah. um and make a point because I think it's a really interesting topic that doesn't get covered. Well, certainly we've not really covered it on the podcast. I don't think it's not Ralph's playbook either. I mean, Ralph obviously had a big input, but this is this wasn't Ralph coming into work one day and saying, "Right, board of directors, your academy's this, that, blah, blah, blah. This is what it has to be like, and you're going to do. You're going to make it in my image." This was a collective decision that that just just made sense, as Steve said. Why would you want your under 23s playing differently from the first team? It just doesn't. It, I mean, I think what frustrated Ralph was when he came in and he was going down and getting the under 23s to come up and train. It just took too long. He needed players to come in and make an impact in training or playing straight away. It, you know, he took Tyreek Johnson up and you know, he went he went through a stage, didn't he, when he first came in and he bought all these like. Uh, Marcus Barnes I think was another one there was a few weren't there and he just grew frustrated at how long it was taking them to get used to him now if Ralph leaves or when Ralph leaves this playbook doesn't then get ripped up exactly it will still be there this isn't Ralph's obviously played a big part in it we have to say that but this isn't Ralph telling the club you're doing this and you're doing it in my image I think the club would, would were looking to do something like this anyway because as steve said it just makes total sense why wouldn't you do it brilliant well thanks for your question lewis and uh, likewise to um michael and jake you're listening to the total saints podcast going to the heart of all things saints fc well, that's it for this week's TSP. We very much appreciate you joining Steve, Glenn, Dan and myself. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to reflect on that tough-looking battle with Burnley in the Premier League. Patrons, we look forward to catching you on Wednesday evening at 8pm and we can all spend the next few weeks dreaming of some potential Wembley success 45 years on from our most famous achievement. Until then, keep marching in. days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's maximize your home ground advantage with mcdelivery order now on the mcdonald's app at participating restaurants 18 plus serving times delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonald's.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.